2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like mould, Frankenstein, and fur. I mean, <laughs> I mean gold, frankincense,
3: and myrrh. I, I prefer yeah. the first one. You had Simon, uh, <laughs> Simon, S- Sam, Sam, even simple Simon, meta Anyway, we we could also do. <laughs> should we do that again, Sam Willis? No, I think that's great. That's fine. I think that's fine. I think that's fine. Or we could do candy, candy corn, candy cane and syrup, which of course is one of my (laughs) my favourite lines from Elf. And I think at this time of year, we should be thinking about doing elves, Sam Willis, as one of our episodes, because I've just been reading the brilliant David Sedaris' book, Santa Land, the first story of which is all about him being an elf in Macy's department store in the centre of New York at Christmas many, many years ago. And I'd love to research that. It's not as you would think it. Uh, Santa Land in Macy's department store is not all sweetness and light, so we could dig Mm. into the darker side of history. However, this is to digress in a sort of abominable uh, way, because what we should be doing and what we will be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam Willis, who knew... That the history of jam, jam does in fact have a history, is all about World War Two rationing and the Women's Institute, think jam and Jerusalem. It's also all about 17th century recipes, empire, sugar, colonial trade and the history of slavery. Or who knew that the history of squid, which is one of our recent episodes, is in fact all about H.G. Wells, the Sea Raiders, and Ladrum Bay in Devon. Walk there if you dare. It's about Archie the Giant Squid at the Natural History Museum in London. It's about zoological specimens cataloguing and the archaeology of knowledge. It's also all about tales of sea monsters from the deep and fossilised ink. That is more
2: than a hundred and sixty million years old. <laughs> Who knew? Amazing. I don't think anyone would have guessed that that was going to be what it was actually all about. Uh, Let me tell you of my fellow presenter, if history were the firmament, the man would be the central star of the trio that makes up Orion's belt. He would be the Al-Nilam to the Al-Nitak and Mintaka, the crucial star buckle holding up the great trousers of the giant Orion, the huntsman of the sky, so respected by Zeus, and without which that great historical giant would be bare-buttocked and trouserless. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James the Belt Daybell. Thank,
3: Thank you, Sam. And you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell? co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a star-related historian, he'd only be the historical equivalent of the star of Bethlehem, shining his great light, guiding the way to the magi of times past, a beacon to long-distance travellers, ensuring they navigate their way through the deserts of facts, a veritable beacon to all history-lovers, out there. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the star himself, the truly famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. (laughs)
2: very good a beacon no less you are a beacon i think a star can be a beacon fiery beacon um ladies and gentlemen welcome to histories of the unexpected and today we shall be talking about the history of stars um this is part of our um overexcited christmas themes this usually happens this time every year we do all sorts of wonderful unexpected subjects on christmas themes um So we've got uh, stars and uh, we're doing today and then another one coming up soon. We're doing the history of shepherds, which will be great fun. So stars, James, um, how did you start thinking about that? Well, I started
3: thinking about stars from the perspective of stars on top of the Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. And this got me thinking about family heirlooms and memories of Christmas past, because ever since I were a wee lad, we used to have a Christmas star on top of our Christmas tree and it was passed on to me when I moved out of home I think my parents were, didn't want it anymore and so it now resides in my own collection of family decorations and this made me think about those countless families around the world who have these heirloom pieces they buy maybe a decoration each year a new decoration or two each year and they, they are then at the end of Twelfth Night put away in a box and brought out at the beginning of Advent when they bedeck a tree and I in fact have my own little family box here in my very study with me and I'm going to open it up and examine all the things that I have in it because what your family Christmas boxes are is a treasure trove of things past. I, in fact, the first thing that I come across here, Sam, is a singing Christmas pudding fountain um, <laughs> uh, which I bought last year to put in the Christmas pudding and it didn't work, uh, um, and I forgot to put it there. Also, I have all sorts of decorations that the girls made. My girls are sort of uh, sort of 10 and 12 now, and I've got all sorts of decorations that they me- made when they were in nursery school, uh, which I've kept as sort of little memories of when they were small. Um, I've also got, what is this here, uh, a little um, wooden... It sounds like our show, Sam. When I'm looking through the the memory box, but this I've got here a little wooden postcard from the Wooden Postcard Museum with the Beatrix Potter characters on it. So a lovely scene. I've got a, a nativity crib. I've got some beautiful decorations that I've collected over the ages, and some fake small Christmas trees. Oh, and you know, like those little Russian dolls that you have. I have a. I have here a Father Christmas. Uh, And inside Father Christmas is a snowman and inside inside the snowman is a robin. And then something else is missing from in the middle. So that got me thinking about the kinds Hmm. of things that we keep as family Christmas souvenirs and that are passed on from one generation to the other not only do I have a star that was on my parents Christmas tree but I also have uh, a little angel a little red angel that I think my parents found was far too tacky to go on their tasteful Christmas tree and they gave it to me and uh, my family think it's far too tacky uh, to go on our Christmas tree and so it stays in its box all year
2: there's something really charming about stuff that's passed down through families and things that kind of roll on from one year to the next isn't it it's one of the joys of Christmas and I often forget that I've found a new decoration or made one or whatever it might be and then I go find it again the next year and it reminds me of the previous year so there's something powerfully historic there James yes I thought so where, yeah. where uh, what, what were you when you thought about Christmas stars or stars well, was, what were you I thinking about a, obsessed with orion 's belt um when Ooh. I was just i was thinking of, of you um so then I thought obviously about the the star of Bethlehem and what, what kind of how that allows us to think in all sorts of interesting ways about the past what, one of the interesting things about the star of Bethlehem is if you 're a uh, a modern um scientist looking up at the, at the or a historian um, looking up at the sky trying to work out what the star was. That the shepherds, sorry, the the wise men followed from the east is actually remarkably difficult because the first thing you need to bear in mind, of course, is that Christ wasn't necessarily born in December. Um, uh, and we actually think that it would be more sensible uh, a time to place the birth in the spring. And one of the one of the the kind of the real. Uh, things that gets you thinking about that is, is the history of shepherds. You've got the shepherds there who are tending their flocks, which is not necessarily something you're going to be doing in the winter, particularly at night. But I will come back to more about that in our coming up episode, our forthcoming episode on the history of shepherds. So um, to work out what star it was um, that the wise men might have witnessed in in the um, in the sky, it does obviously mean you have to tackle a more fundamental question at the heart of the Bible about the birth of Jesus and the time it was. I mean, one of the things we certainly know is that um, the date of Christmas was changed by, uh, by the Roman Emperor Constantine, who moved the holiday uh, to, for it to coincide with the shortest night of the year. So there's a bit of a kind of a um, box of snakes there that it's very difficult indeed to unravel. Nonetheless, there have been various explanations about what the Star of Bethlehem is, that it might have been a a supernova explosion. But the problem here is is actually looking at the sources of how you can find out what was going on in the ancient Middle East. Um, We've got some great 17th century um, European scholars. Johannes Kepler uh, is one of them, and also some wonderful ancient Chinese sources. And it's amazing how silent the Chinese sources are about these uh, the events which may or may not have happened around the time of christ's birth um and that's a great example there of of the supernova explosion is it? it's just there's 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 pretty much silence or only one possible mention of something happening around about that time other suggestions is that it was a comet um and that is supported by people who like the idea of it moving uh, another that it was a conjunction of jupiter and saturn Um, I actually find all this really interesting. I looked into it when I was doing a lot of early Chinese history as well, and um, it's actually all to do with the way that you can confidently date um, really important events, uh, the changing of dynasties in particular, um, by looking at the uh, Chinese astrologers, and they were noting down what was happening in the sky. And because we could work backwards um, with modern science, we can now uh, pinpoint dates very specifically um one another suggestion is a stationary point of jupiter which i quite like this one um because jupiter's path across the sky is not uh, it, it doesn't it's not continuous it does apparently seem to um to stop and to hover so there's a, a possibility that it was that there's also a possibility it was a conjunction of jupiter regulus and venus to give it some particular brightness um but i of course um you know think that these explanations are nonsense, and actually the way you need to look at it is to um, consider the fact that what they were looking at is the death star from star wars and that <laughs> led me on to um some really, really wonderful work. I will talk about in a minute, not right now, about um the early history of toys and um and and memorabilia and collectibles linked with films, James. So that's coming your way. <laughs> excellent, excellent. The history of Star Wars.
3: I mean, maybe it's <laughs> worth
2: a moment just dwelling on
3: this idea, on the Star of Bethlehem and the history behind that, because this is where we get the idea of the, from the Nativity story from the Gospel of Matthew. And this is where wise men coming from the east follow a star, travel to Jerusalem where they meet. King Herod of Judea, and ask him, you know, where is the the the, the baby who's the king of the Jews? Uh, and this is in Matthew one eighteen to two twenty three. And in our last episode, when we looked at donkeys, I read a rather dreadful version of the Bible. A rather sort of modern, unpoetic version. And I found the authorized King James version here, which is slightly better. And I just want to read you a little extract of this, just so that you get the sort of the reason why we're actually looking at stars. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with the child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being just a man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou art son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for which that which is conceived is Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also." When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And so it goes on. So that is really the sort of founding text for the importance of the star. And it's led to all sorts of uh, representations in literature and also in paintings, in art. The Adoration of the Magi. Basically, the, the nativity of Jesus is represented in art throughout the world, and there are literally dozens of frescoes, paintings, portraits of this from places like the Uffizi in Florence, the Adoration of the Magi by Jura, or Leonardo's painting, also in the Uffizi. The Uffizi has has tons of these. There's also there are also um paintings in the Rijksmuseum, uh King's College Chapel Cambridge, Royal Museum of Fine Arts in Amsterdam, Museo del Prado in Madrid, the National Gallery in London and I could go on and on and on with that. So there we are Sam, a little bit of uh, biblical history and history of art. Hold
0: up.
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Yeah, I love it. So I was wanting to do... Um Carry on with my uh, observation that people were they were they were not following the um, any kind of supernova or comet, but it might well have been the Death Star in Star Wars, because the Death Star has a very interesting role in the history of adaption which is the adaption of a, like a narrative form from one medium to another. So you've got novels to films, or films into TV or video games or whatever it might be. Um, but you get some uh, examples just like Star Wars, where you've got. Um, you've got a, a narrative set in an imaginary world, and they often find themselves adapted uh, not only into into uh, a different other media, but also into toys and playsets. And the Death Star has a really interesting role to play in the history of Lego, in particular, that takes us to the the wonderful world of of toys in the early twentieth century. Uh, and I actually wonder whether the um, when we talk about shepherds um, coming up soon, James, that that shepherds and miniature figures. I I might explore that actually in the History of Shepherds, uh, uh the miniaturization of the Nativity. Anyway, um Lego bursts onto the scene in nineteen forty nine. It's it's so much more versatile, so much more uh Easy to work with than a lot of the others that were on the market. You've got Meccano 1908, you've got A.C. Gilbert's Erector set of 1913, the Tinker Toy construction set of 1914, and my favorite one, Lincoln Logs of 1916, which were all great fun, but they were very limited. Um, but Lego comes on and absolutely changes everything. Now, As I said, you can put this into a a much broader history of miniatures and toys. There's some wonderful examples of Egyptian miniatures found in Egyptian tombs going back to 2000 BC, so 4,000 years. Um, What's really important about the way everything changes is that there's a real focus in the late 50s of... um, Particular sets of toys. So you've got uh, the Western Ranch set of 1951, Cowboy and Indian Camp, 1953, the Arctic Explorer playset, 1958, uh, the Civil War one, Fort Apache, another Fort Dearborn in 1952, Roy Rogers comes along 1952. Um, And then it all changes and they start to get linked to the rights of major films, major media. And some of the earlier ones are Planet of the Apes, Marvel Comics, uh, DC Comics and Star Trek. Uh, there's even a Wizard of Oz of, of Oz set, which I think is uh, wonderful. I'd really like to, to have seen that one. Anyway, Star Wars 1977 and Kenner Products buy the licence to make... Uh, make uh, figures and action figures and uh, and toys and memorabilia associated with the film. And there are so many different ones. The Droid Factory of 79, uh, the Cantina Adventure Set of 78, um, and then particularly their very successful Death Star PlayStation of 1978. Now, this wasn't Lego, but then Lego comes along and they start to... Um, they do it immediately actually. They have to. There's, a, there's an internal row that they don't want to sell Lego sets that have the word wars in them. But they do start making them, and then um, they've become Lego's most successful um, construction set of all. And out of all of them, the Death Star is the most successful one of them all. Um, they they uh, to do it, they had to do a bit of research into the Death Star itself, and they worked out. Um, by looking at uh, all sorts of ways of analysing the visuals. It has 84 internal levels, each composed of 357 sublevels, for a total of 29,988 levels. And the diameters of the first and second Death Stars are, according to official figures, 160 kilometres and 900 kilometres wide. So uh, they had a bit of trouble with the scale, but LEGO managed to sort it out, and it meant that the LEGO... Lego Death Star is one of the most successful uh, Lego sets that's ever been sold, James. Oh, Sam Willis, and
3: is, was it really the Death Star that they were following uh, to the baby Jesus? I think it might have been. Oh, no, goodness The be. fact that
2: we no one else H- can historical really v- it. <laughs>
3: it sounds historically. Um, Uh, uh, intriguing (laughs) at least (laughs) anyway I want to pick up on the idea of the stars and navigation because what we have there is these these wise men or more precisely they'd probably been astrologers at the time um, following a star and there is a history of navigation by the stars and you probably know an awful lot about this because of you know working with um with ships and things and being able to uh, position oneself by the by the stars following the different constellations around the sky i'm not going to dwell on that because i think as i said you you probably know far more about using sextants and things like that do you know much about that sam I knew a fair bit about it. A fair bit about it. Maybe you could chip in uh, a little later on that. Um, but what I wanted to talk about was I'd been reading a brilliant book. Uh, I may buy you this uh, this year. It's by a historian called A. Roger Eckertch. Uh, and it's called At Day's Close, A History of Night Time. And I was recommended this by a friend of mine uh, during the year and I bought it. And I've just been dipping into it for what it said on stars because there's been a really interesting history of how people have navigated around at night by stars. And there are all sorts of things that you can do with stars. You can tell the time, you can guide, be guided by them, and you can also predict the weather. And this is a fascinating book that looks at from the medieval to the modern, A uh, History of Nighttime. And one of the intriguing questions is about how we find ourselves in a darkened world and how you get around and how you live your life. And certainly, when you're thinking about wandering around at night you can often be uh, in a time before street lamps you can often see your way because of the moon uh, or because of the stars I remember years ago when I first moved back to Devon from the United States this must be about 17 18 years ago now and I'd come back and we were living in a little village in the South Hams in Devon and my supervisor my PhD supervisor came to Visit and he 'd taken my wife and I out to dinner, and then he announced that he was a big fan of night walking. Do you enjoy night walking james and i said well I've, frankly i 've never done it. We should go on a night walk. This was about eleven o 'clock, and he insisted that we go and just wander through the lanes and through the woods and fields in the middle of deepest, darkest Devon uh, when it was pitch black. And he said, don't worry, it's perfectly fine. As soon as your eyes get used to it, you're able to see. And lo and behold, we were wandering up until sort of one o'clock in the morning and were being able to see because our eyes had adjusted to the light because there were stars out in the sky. And it was amazing. If you put on a torch or a lamp, you couldn't see as far in front of you as if you'd actually were were walking with just your natural eyes. One terrifying thing that happened though, as we were coming out of a, a field full of animals we walked over some barbed wire and into a very narrow lane uh, which was covered by trees and an owl just sort of swooped into the passageway uh, utterly utterly terrified us, but there is a history of people wandering around at night, guided by either the moon or guided by the guided by the stars um, and and i 'll read a quote from the book here: uh, people being uh, guided by the moon, many cities and towns that had once required pedestrians to carry lanterns or torches no longer did so by the seventeenth century, and there are examples of Londoners. Uh, travelling around by what is titled a Brave Moonshine, as the diarist Samuel Pepys uh, rec- recorded it. Um, Jonathan Swift uh, related a coach ride to the Lord Treasurer's Home and described it, the moon shone and so we were not in much danger of overturning. Um, and there's another account here that, that, that relating to the natural light of the stars um, whose glow, though fainter, was more reliable. "'It was neither dark nor light. "'It was a starlit night,' observed a man in 1742. And in some parts of England, uh, the first star after sunset, Vesper, actually the planet of Venus, was called the Shepherd's Lamp because of its bright glow above the western horizon. The Shepherd's Lamp, which even children know, was penned by John Clare in the early 19th century.' So you've got all sorts of people who are wandering around by by by, by starlight. The, the poet Robert Herrick wrote, Let not the dark thee cumber, what though the moon does slumber, the stars of night will lend thee their light. And a Londoner uh, from the mid-18th century recounted, Between 11 and 12, it being a fine starlight night, I put my sword and cane under my arm, and walked. And there are also people talking about the Milky Way, for example, and the bright swathe of white light that stretched from one horizon to the other, dividing the sky in two. Um, As described by a writer in the Universal Magazine of Knowledge and Pleasure in 1753, the region seems to be all on a blaze with their blended rays. But it's not just it's not just navigating by the stars, navigating and finding your way around being lit by the stars. It's also that people were able to tell the time because of the stars, where the, scar- the stars were in the sky. And think of this as a the 17th century. This is a time when people might have been able to afford clocks or other time pieces, uh, but also they were able to have a look at natural transitions marked some intervals such as um, roosters moving around in their, in their habitats or what is known that the roosters were known as the the peasant's clock but also for other people um, nocturnal times such as midnight people would often depend on the stars and moon uh, for example in the play Rodon and Iris in 1631 a shepherd Acanthus replies that it is the 11th hour for Orion hath advanced very high. Um, And also, writing uh, in 1786, um, a writer in Boston wrote, The poor peasant who never saw a watch will tell the time to a fraction by the rising and setting of the moon and some particular stars. And also, uh, stars would help with forecasting the weather, everything from thunderstorms to frosts. Um, The authors of Maison Rustique uh, in 1616 uh, explained that a good farmer, although he need not be bookwise, must have knowledge of the foretelling... Rain, wind, fair weather and all alterations of the seasons. And various omens existed for this, but people also seem to have put their faith in the night sky. And listen to this um, declaration from a London author of A Prognostication Everlasting published in 1605 behold the stars whose magnitude you know best if they appear of much light in bigness great more blazing than they are commonly it betokeneth great wind or moisture in that part they show and i just want to end with one really great example of knowledge uh, of the of the stars and this is an ancient Chinese star map that was discovered in the nineteenth century. Now, you may have heard of this, Sam, because it's it's on the route of the Silk Road, which, as you, as we all know, connects the West to China. And it's a some caves, the Magao caves, which which honeycomb the the Mingsha Hill. And there are about they are twenty five kilometers southeast of of Dunhuang, uh, a, a desert town in the Gansu province, and they were excavated between the 4th and 14th centuries. And the caves were Buddhist shrines and temples where travellers would have stopped off on their journeys and prayed for, for success. And in 1900, a priest called Wang Yanlu, uh, who was a Taoist priest, um, basically discovered 40,000 manuscripts in cave number 17. He stumbles upon a completely hidden library and suddenly you've got one of the greatest archaeological manuscript finds in of ancient China. And these manuscripts, all 40,000 of them, range across all sorts of subjects from religion, history, art, literature, medicine, economics. This is basically uh, a treasure trove of documents that had been sealed in this cave since the 11th century and in the turn of the 20th century had come to light and among them was a an amazing star chart an exquisite star chart and it was form it was a four meter long paper roll and in 1907 It and about 7,000 other cave manuscripts were picked up by the archaeologist uh, Mark Aurel Steen, uh, who took them along to the British Museum in London. And they date from 649 to 684 AD, and the chart is the oldest extant Graphical star atlas in the world. And it's divided into two sections. Um, One shows 26 drawings of differently shaped clouds, um, with clouds. The other shows section shows 12 star maps, each depicting a 30 degree division of the sky. And in all, and when you see it spread out, and if you go to the British Library website. You can have a look at it because it's among the treasures there. It is utterly astonishing. It is, as I said, about four metres long. There are 1,345 stars depicted in 257 constellations all clearly marked, all clearly named. And this chart may have been used to consult the heavens, to predict earthly events. And if you think about that in the context of imperial China, in ancient China, astronomy is an imperial science. Court astronomers and astrologers created these these charts. Um, and it could be that it actually is an important political tool in other words, emperors were seeking celestial clues for for, for making political decisions, uh, entering into wars, and and helping them in warfare. And this, what it shows, is maybe the importance of divination in these in the production of these star catalogs. So it's all about. It's not just about navigating by the stars, but it's also
2: about being able to predict the future uh, for mm. the stars. So there we Good are Sam. Stuff. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Oh, um, so the Chinese would have definitely used that for political purposes to um solidify their position in court or to defend any decision they've made. Um so on the one hand yes it's uh, it is a map of the stars but on the other it is uh it is it is much more interesting and it's actually a very powerful political tool. Um so what you got there is it kind of it's it's the star as it's a symbol of political power, isn't it? So so yes, I mean you you have knowledge of the stars, but it's knowing what to do with it, and the star as a symbol is um uh, is a fascinating fascinating. Uh, there's a history there to it, and I came across a, a chapter of this where I've not come across before, and it's called the Gold Star Mothers and Widows Pilgrimages of 1930 to 1933, and this is all to do with the First World War and um allowing grieving uh, mothers and widows um who are uh, american uh, allowing them the chance to go to europe and to grieve at the graveside of their son sons or husband um it's a wonderful story and um to, to understand it you need to to realize that there was a the military service flag um, in America, each mother or husband or, or, or wife would be given one if their if their son or husband signed up, and it's um, you've got uh, just a. a- say, a, a red border with a cream background, then you have the number of stars indicating the number of people from your household who have gone to fight. Uh, I'm looking at an example here. There are two blue stars. And that says that the blue stars the soldiers are soldiers there. They're fighting and they're still alive. And if one of them was unfortunate enough to have died, they covered up the blue one with gold and it became known as the gold stars. And and so these grieving women, instead of wearing black, wore gold star patches on their clothes, uh, which I thought was interesting, a bit parallel with the, um, the, the what was going on in Europe, where the Germans were making all the Jews also wear gold stars on their clothes. But here you've got it for a very, very different reason indeed. Um, the widows and uh, the mothers, they, they campaigned for a long time um, and eventually won a great victory. The government set aside a huge amount of money, um, <clears throat> almost five and a half million dollars, and they set up uh, a meticulously planned pilgrimage it wasn't just a journey it was an actual pilgrimage um it was a 27 day trip rail travel ocean travel on the, the most wonderful line is they could get lodgings meals tips were all included uh, there was provisions for nurses um and uh, and um to, to help uh, with those who are traveling who are elderly um there were when they got there they were given um restroom facilities uh, chairs flowers professional photographers to take a portrait at the graveside um had 10 days were allotted to tour paris the battlefields other points of interest um and but they also had 4 days specifically set aside to spend at the cemetery with um the grave of their sons son or husband Um, six and a half thousand pilgrims eventually made the voyage, four and a bit thousand in the first year in 1930 and the uh, the rest subsequent years and a wonderful little letter here I had mourned the loss of my only child for years and at times was terribly bitter but when I visited the cemetery at Romagne and saw more than 30,000 crosses in that vast necropolis I realised that others had suffered as I had and that we must try to comfort each other So there we are, James, ending with a a, a nice story of of comfort and also thoughts about the star as a symbol. Oh, terrific, Sam, terrific.
3: There are so many examples of stars as symbols. I mean, we probably don't have time to get into it, but we've talked about how ancient Roman and Greek uh, mythology led to the naming of stars. I mean, this is where Orion's belt comes from. But I found some really interesting South African star myths as well. Uh, that, and I will just share a sort of a, a couple of you uh, that relating to uh, Orion, for example. Um, a gir- one of these tales is that a girl child of the old people had magical powers so strong that when she looked at a group of fierce lions, they were immediately turned into stars and the largest of which are now in Orion's belt. Um, there are others that sort of relate to the moon or the sun or and and, and other stars. Um, the Milky Way, for example, is another strong-willed girl who became so angry when her mother wouldn't give her something to eat, this delicious roasted root, that she grabbed it from her mother's hands, threw it, and with the ashes into the sky. And where the red and white roots landed, they now glow as red and white stars and are thought to be the Milky Way. So all sorts of cultures and traditions have interpreted the stars in
2: different ways. Wonderful stuff Wonderful stuff. Well guys thank you very much For listening to our History of stars We've got the history Of shepherds coming up And do please go back To our back catalogue To check out the other Christmas episodes Not just from this year But from previous years We've always done at least I don't know Five or six maybe This time of year And they're all super good fun Um, If you want to find out More about what's going on Please follow me on Twitter I'm at Dr Sam Willis And if you're interested In maritime and naval history And navigating by the stars Do please follow The Mariner's Mirror podcast And if
3: you'd like to follow me On social media I'm on at James Dable. The podcast is on at unexpected pod. We're also on Instagram and facebook so come and befriend us there we have a website histories of the unexpected.com and at the moment we are selling signed books especially for christmas and orders have been coming in and we are processing those for people um so check that out we've got a big book uh, histories of the unexpected and little stocking fillers on world war ii i'm doing the backwards this time world war II, Tudors vikings and romans also if you'd like to support the podcast and be a patron pop over to patreon.com and anything that you can give to support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past would be very much appreciated thank you very much for listening guys see you soon
2: cheers guys bye bye